the internet's cool, guys, in case you haven't noticed. And it's even cooler when you look at it from a folklorist's perspective. And on this episode of We've Got 20 Minutes, I sit down with Lynn McNeil, and that's what we do. We talk about folklore, the internet, and laundry detergent. So listen up. How do you feel about Snapchat? How do I feel about Snapchat? Because your whole kick is the internet's awesome because we're documenting folklore mm-hmm. and we're mm-hmm. recording it for future generations mm-hmm. and looking back and like mm-hmm. that kind of wonderful nonsense. But Snapchat is all about killing your favorite part of the internet. <laughs> it's, how do you think it's killing my favorite part of the internet? Well, because people, a lot of social media is like a lot of the kids these days. Yes. I'm using air quotes. Yes. Um, you being one of the kids these I days? I try. But anyways, that's like a platform they're looking to, and mm-hmm. it's not really storing anything in a way yep. that we can look back. No, that's a really good point. So it's not providing that archival mm-hmm. aspect of, of internet culture, but what it is providing, and this is something I only realized recently, mm-hmm. is a whole new take on the interactivity element. So sort of the ephemeral folk culture yeah. of the internet, and we're not aided in preserving that by something that disappears. It's much more like offline conversation, which is not preserved either, Mm -hmm. right? So it doesn't help folklorists in the sense of preservation, Mm -hmm. but it is useful for folklorists to look at in the sense of understanding interaction. Yeah, and and I guess it's probably like an interesting need that's being fulfilled by an app. Well, and it's, it's cool. So I give my students this assignment where we talk about how people who stress out about online interaction are usually stressing out because... They feel that the things that give conversation and interaction their richness are getting filtered out. So like the social cues of facial expression, reaction, Mm -hmm. gesture, tone, even what people are wearing, what they look like, it's all gone. And so I give my students this assignment to find a mediated interaction. So like a phone chat, Mm -hmm. Skype, whatever, Facebook chat, Snapchat. And find all the ways that we've put social cues back in. Because this was something that people did on their own. And Mm -hmm. it's pretty awesome if you think about it. So how has that happened in Facebook, for example? I would say probably the easiest way, the first way it happened, was with emoticons, right? So Uh I need to indicate to you that I'm smiling when I say this. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I make a smiley face. I need yeah. to indicate to you that I'm winking when I say this. So I Have make a winky face. Have you heard comparing a smiley face to like a conversational condom? Like it'll protect, <laughs> and you can do anything as long as you put a smiley face on the end of it. That is, I'm going to use that now. <laughs> but it is, right? I mean, we have altered printed speech uh-huh. by these things. And then it just gets more elaborate. Like the people who make little cat faces and the people mm-hmm. who go into like the full ASCII art and make like ruffle copters and stuff like this out of just punctuation. That was people taking what they had available to them to meet the communicative needs they had. Nowadays, we have reaction gifs, right? Yes. I mean, I don't need to make my own facial expressions. But I do need to put that Liz Lemon eye roll oh, after exactly, somebody's comment. Right? So I, I have hired out uh-huh. My facial expressions to a series of trained actors, right? Tina Fey, eye rolls for me. I don't need to anymore, but the eye rolls in there. Uh-huh. And I don't need to just write the word eye roll in asterisks or anything. Now I have the images. When I first launched this podcast, mm-hmm. also using air quotes, yes. um, uh, my Cammie, the naked lady, mm-hmm. commented back and she's like, it's happening, exclamation point. And so then I pulled that gif mm-hmm. of... Uh, Maya Rudolph pooping in the street from Bridesmaids. And that's how I applied to it. Because I thought it was so fitting. It's perfect though, right? Uh I mean, these are, we had a need to put tone and expression and all of that back in our speech. And we did. And we did it without someone handing us the dictionary of how to do it. Which is exactly what folklore is all about, right? My thing with Snapchat is, 
I justify a lot of Instagram is I'm journaling. I am preserving mm-hmm. pieces mm-hmm. of my life. Interesting. And so that's why I have a hard time with Snapchat because it's just like so ethereal, ephemeral. Yeah. It is. And so, I mean, so much interaction is, right? Mm -hmm. As a way, someone makes a nasty face at you Mm -hmm. in a meeting, you can't go back and prove that that happened, Uh right? You have to just be like, no, I saw it. It I mean, you can screenshot. Okay. Well, if you want to. But wait, one more thing about Snapchat, though. I had a student, an insightful student this past semester, point out to me that Snapchat, while it has, you're actually seeing someone, it's coming to you sort of in real time. you can hide a lot. Like she said mm-hmm. that she would Snapchat with her sister and her sister was going through this really rough patch and she never knew. And uh-huh. she's like, if we'd been on FaceTime, I would have known. But because it was Snapchat and she could choose which There's moments so to freeze frame and then they're gone, mm-hmm. she was able to hide that. So it's, yeah, a lot of social cues added back in, but people, we've always hidden what we wanted to I, hide. Well, and like even just conversing with like potential photography clients, I prefer doing it over email or Facebook messenger or texting just because it gives me time to come up with a thought out response. Exactly. And how I want to present myself instead of on a phone. I'm just like, uh, uh. Oh, I know. I just, I love having time to think and it's good and bad because it makes it so much easier to hide things. Exactly. So if you were like a cultural anthropologist Mm -hmm. on the Starship Enterprise (gasps) in 2350. Okay, that's my dream, but yeah. Yeah. What, what thing would get you the most excited? Oh my goodness. I feel like it would be something that people on earth are not excited about at all. Oh, from this century. Like, from the, okay. Our, our yes. moment in time, okay. early 21st century. So I'm living on the Enterprise. Yes. Whose Enterprise? Kirk's or um, You can choose. Cards. Um, <laughs> and, okay, so I come to earth now yeah. in the, or you're, yeah. the 20 teens. You travel back in time. What gets you excited? Man, that is such a hard question because I want to say, I feel that my mind is leaping to things that excite me now. Yeah. And I feel like so much of what we have now is like old hat to everyone on the Enterprise. They're yeah. just sort of like, yeah, no, we do that all the time. But it's your no job to look deal. back. I know. So you're well, allowed to get excited about And that. to look at the little nuances of things. Mm-hmm. I think I would be interested in the technologies that in the end, will have no place in the span of history. Oh, so like Google Glass. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like the things that at the time seem so big. Like and I was exciting. thinking about this. I was listening to Elon Musk talk Ooh. on the radio, and he was like, apparently he's really good at predicting things, you know, and he was talking about how the future is in electricity and solar panels and rocket ships. And I was thinking that's it's probably true. You know, mm-hmm. we need power. Electricity makes sense. Sustainable electricity makes even more sense. And then he did say something like, you know, I've started a bunch of projects, all of which failed. And I'm just using that to understand where this is going. And it made me think about all those buses that you see driving around that say, like, this vehicle runs on corn. And it's like... Nobody cares anymore. Nobody cares. Like, like there was a moment where we were all like, we're going to save the farmers and the environment and the air and pollution and not be dependent on other countries' oil with corn, ethanol. And now it's just sort of like, oh shucks. Yeah. yeah. Nope. Those are just going to be electric buses and this will disappear. And... When you think about the lived experience, so much that, like, is really, really big is just gone. Mm -hmm. The minute you take, like, three steps back and look at it as a cultural totality. I I think using Star Trek as a metaphor is really interesting because you look at what they were predicting with it. Mm -hmm. And some of the things are still advanced and, like, we don't even know if they're possible, like, Mm -hmm. transporters and replicators and stuff. But then there's other things, like, just, like, the user interface computer stuff that you're just, like... 
We've reached so far beyond so what they imagined far already. on that extent. The thing I love the most is everyone always says, and on one level it's true, Star Trek predicted iPads mm-hmm. because everyone's walking around with these little iPads. They hand them off to each other to yeah. share information. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, no, no way. Like, like no oh, one, I, I just here, have my phone. This yeah. scan of the solar Take system. my phone and walk away with it, and now you have it. It might as well be a pad of paper for mm-hmm. all that it's valuable, that it's electronic. I so, mean... Why do you get excited about folklore? Why does it turn your crank? And what is folklore? We never. Oh, what is folklore? Is that's <laughs> the question that all folklore students learn to dread early. Folklore is, in short, informal traditional culture. So it's all the stuff of culture, like stories and art and and rituals and songs and everything, but that all exists on the total informal level. So you don't go to school to learn how to do it, you just learn it from other people. So instead of novels, it's urban legends, and instead of museum art, it's graffiti. And instead of you know church ritual, it's Sunday dinner and, and things like that. So it's just all the culture on the informal level. And I think I love it because if you're the kind of person who likes to sort of reflect on interpersonal interaction and social interaction, you see it has like the biggest impact. Like folklore is the crux by which 13 year olds are mean to each other. It's amazing when you watch a teenager's just perfectly precise deployment of an inside joke to alienate some people present in a social situation, you're like, oh man, that's just incredible. And that's folklore, right? Knowing whether you're inside or outside a group is often entirely based on whether or not you get that group's folk culture. Mm -hmm. Do I understand the folk speech you're using? Do I get the jokes you're telling? Do I understand why we all shouted padiddle as we were driving through that intersection? Things like that. Do I understand? That is such an important part of the lived experience, and yet we never test anyone on it. Mm -hmm. Outside of folklorists, we don't document it as important. We don't consider it at all. And it's just so big. And when you feel that sense of, I get it, I'm in, I know what this is. It's just so exciting. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I'm just weird. No. And that's like, that's the whole good. reason for this mm-hmm. podcast is understanding mm-hmm. people. Exactly. And so I want to know why you're excited about folklore. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and folklore. Because the- it's something that like, I think super interesting, but I would never want to dump a career into it. I don't think. So. I know. But no. we'll see because I still don't know what you to do with my may. life. Um, <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, I didn't know when I was a teenager, I loved folk tales and fairy tales and yeah I was that kind of teenager and I didn't know that that was a thing you could study and then the more I learned about what folklore was the more I liked it like I wrote my undergraduate thesis on fairy tales and then my master's thesis on supernatural folklore and then my doctoral dissertation on digital folklore and it just got more interesting as it went it was like this field of study keeps up with whatever I am interested in. So how did you build your life around it besides just school? Is there anything else? I mean, I think school is sort of a shorthand for an incredible wealth of experiences, right? Social experiences, professional experiences. I worked in folklore archives at every university I attended. And you get to know not just the other people who work in the archives, but the patrons of the archives, scholars who would come. And scholars come from all over the world and use the Fife Folklore Archives here at USU. And so you get to meet them and participating in... Is that what keeps you here? I think what keeps me here is, yes, this is an amazing folklore program. I mean, it is, we bring in... A lot of scholars were very involved in the community. You could ask a folklorist anywhere, do you know of Utah State University? And they would say yes. I mean, that's 
were mm-hmm. a big presence on the folklore stage. So that's pretty exciting. Also and they're on the ceramic stage. It, surprisingly. <laughs> no, I know. It's like I tell my students that at the beginning of every semester. It's like aerospace engineering, you know, small satellites, agriculture, folklore, ceramics. That's <laughs> the weird things we that got we're really together. good at, you know? So the reason I know you is because I'm on the TEDx USU team, and I'm the photographer on it, and I was in charge of some of the creative stuff for it. And then you were a speaker this year. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about that experience, especially what you had to leave out of a talk, out of your talk that you wish you could have included. What ended up on the TEDx USU living, um, no, cutting room floor? <laughs> or the living room floor. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the living room is where the cutting happened. Um, as long as it's not in the bathtub, <laughs> we're fine. <laughs> Okay. I'm sorry. No, I might cut that out. No, you're kidding. (laughs) Um, You know, it's any talk like that where you are trying to convey the totality of a field that people are going to have a misconception of. You can almost be sure of it. And then trying to say something new about that field. It's sort of this balancing act of, I remember during the audition for the TED Talk, after I'd been nominated, I went into audition and I'm just rambling completely about what I want to talk about. And one of the folks, I don't remember who it was, maybe it was Scott, said, okay, wait a minute. What's the point here? What's the takeaway? Is it what folklore is or is it that there's folklore on the internet? And I was basically like, there can't be the second one without the first one. And so I think the point is the second one, that there's folklore on the internet, and that will require me to explain to everyone what folklore is. Because when I say folklore on the internet, there are a lot of people who are going to go, yeah, okay, I can see that. I probably could Google a Celtic mythology site, mm-hmm. because that's what they think folklore is. And so to... to In that sus- sense, everything's on the internet. Exactly, right? I mean, what isn't on the internet? So what looking at the internet less as a repository and more as a site for interaction that then happens to become a repository is way more interesting. And so conveying that was was really tricky. I think I had an entire intro to folklore, like 15 weeks semester in the first version of that Mm -hmm. TED Talk, where it was like, I'm going to go over every point that I go over with my students because that's what you need to know what folklore is. And it was hard. I mean, I teach intro to folklore. I've written an introductory textbook. It was hard for me to let go of wanting those people in that performance hall to know everything. Mm-hmm. And I had to sort of be like, nope. Like, they're going to have an expanded view, but it is going to remain incomplete, and that is fine. Like, that's the point of a TED Talk is not to replicate a 15 week semester. And exactly. And buy my textbook and read it. <laughs> and then they will know what folklore actually is. But, like, were there any, like, anecdotes or stories or interesting points that you left out that you wish you could have kept in there? Um, I think that's a really good question. I think one thing that was hard for me was settling on a case study and I went with the, um, pepper spraying spraying cop. cop. Yeah. The casually pepper spraying cop, because I think that's a little piece of internet folklore that speaks to both how silly internet folklore is and how serious internet folklore can be. So it's a good example but I had all these other examples in my mind, like tourist guy from 9-11. He's just an awesome example. The first thing on the internet that I recognized as folklore was the Hamster Dance website. Are you old enough to remember this? Yeah, that weird I song. Was, yes. I'm pretty, yeah. So it's the song that like the rooster whistles at the beginning of Robin Hood, the Disney version with foxes. Oh, and they speed it up. And like, they da, speed da, it da, up. Da, yeah. Da, 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 da. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Hamster Dance, yeah. So the original website for this was like, it was just these little 
like animations of cartoon hamsters spinning around in circles and that song on a loop and that was it. And then the next thing I knew there were all these variations of it and variation is the marker of folk culture. So we know that something is folk and not institutional when there's no single right version of it. There might be a first version, but it's no more like correct or copyrighted or, you know, officially stamped than anything else. And I remember actually, this is weird, it was right across the hall because I was a graduate student here at the time and we're all sitting at the computer and someone's like, have you seen this? And they bring up hamster dance on like Netscape Navigator and we all stand there watching it and then someone else is like, no, I saw a different one and they put in some different thing and I was just like, and I think pretty much the rest of my career was written Is that when you made the connection or were people already connecting folklore to the internet? No, not yet. Not at that. I'm trying to think of the dates. That would have been like 1999 and uh, I think some of the first earliest things written about folklore on the internet that were actually addressing the like the actual internet were like 1997 and it was mainly jokes and urban legends on like usenet groups and listservs jokes and urban legends were the two the first offline genres of folklore that people found online so interestingly pretty much all the scholars now who are digital folklore scholars um, who were folklorists before the internet were either legend scholars or joke scholars. And one of the things you said was people blame like smartphones and stuff mm-hmm. for an easy way to ignore the people around you. Yes. And you see, and you look, and if you look back, newspapers and TV were another way of doing it. Do you feel like smartphones have exacerbated that problem? Or it's just another way of us ignoring each other? Honestly, I think it's another way of us ignoring each other. I mean, technology is always faster and farther reaching. Everything it does. It, may, it connects people faster and across greater distances in incredible intimate ways. Anyone who's had a you know, close friend or a partner who lives overseas has cause to thank the universe for Skype or FaceTime because that connection is made faster and farther reaching. And yeah, so our ability to ignore and shun people is also faster and farther reaching. But I just go back to that is not that is not a technology thing. That is a people thing. There's um, a scholar who, who talks about interpersonal communication online who brings up the fact that every new technological development has, in some people's minds, heralded the downfall of society. Like we saw it with the television. That was supposed to ruin us, right? It turns out that there was a lot of moral panic over the telephone, the original landline telephone, when people were like, if someone doesn't have to walk into my office to talk to me, how will I know if they're worth talking to? Which basically means I would judge them on their looks and then either send them away or invite them in. Um, And there's this great quote um, that I love that I can get you the full copy of if you would like to see it. And it talks all about this new invention that's ruining the world and making people stupid it, it the one of the lines is this new invention gives people the show of wisdom without the reality and it makes people forgetful and stupid and i every time i read it i think wikipedia <laughs> because you know i can fake my way through a conversation about some concept i've never heard of run to the bathroom google the wikipedia page about that concept come back and know all about it totally the show of wisdom and it's like Aristotle talking about the alphabet. Yeah. One of my teachers was talking about Wikipedia. His main point was it's not as bad as we think it is Mm -hmm. because one of his associates was asked to write an encyclopedia entry and he just sent it in and they just looked at it and went, okay, and put it in there. Wow. There was no double checking or anything. So in this way, you have 
an entire, you have millions of people contributing yeah. to these articles. So Yeah, well, and the idea is that it's self-correcting, right? That if someone puts wrong information in, someone else will correct it with correct information, which is actually the principle on which folklore evolves. There's an old school folklorist named Carl von Sydow who wrote the epic laws of folk narrative. And one of them was that folklore is self-correcting, which in his example means if I tell a joke really poorly, you aren't stuck telling that joke the same crappy way I did when you turn around and tell it at a party. You get to fix it. Wikipedia is basically the same idea. So in your position, you're kind of an observer. Mm -hmm. And that's something hard for me to see joy in because I'm very mm. much the things I take joy in is creation of mm. stuff. Mm -hmm. So how do you explain observing? <laughs> that is exciting. And I would explain it very simply using a nice old fashioned anthropological term, which is participant observation. Folklorists, I actually describe it as being like having x-ray vision in mm -hmm. the textbook. It's like folklorists are superheroes. They participate in the things they're interested in. So it's not a it's not a wallflower. It's not a standing back. It's not an overseeing. It's a I'm here, I'm in, I am in this Mardi Gras parade. I am singing mm -hmm. these folk songs. I am learning this weird Morris dancing. I didn't mean to call Morris dancing weird. Sorry, Morris dancers of the world. But like, I'm so there, Google that. <laughs> it'll be interesting. Okay. Um, there is, there is an, I think an engagement among folklorists that often there isn't among anthropologists or sociologists where there's sort of this sense of keep the data clean and folklorists are like, there's no clean data. <laughs> like we're just talking. So you get to roll around in folklore with yeah, everyone else. Yeah, exactly. But yet have this double vision where you're, participating in whatever folk culture you're you're looking at and yet you're participating with this extra level of of awareness and insight and interpretation and analysis and actually Clifford Geertz who's a famous anthropologist I think was the one who first defined the work of the ethnographer as deep hanging out like that's <laughs> it you're hanging out but you're doing it deeply mm -hmm. you know with better attention than the average person who might also be hanging out with you would be. I, I think that's why observation isn't dry or bloodless or uninvolved. It It's this different type of observation that's basically like, I'd be doing this anyway, and now mm -hmm. I'm going to write a book about it too, yeah. you know. I'm going to sell it for tens of dollars. <sighs> tens of dollars, yeah. Why should people care about folklore? Oh, that is the best question. I love that question because Good. students always ask at some point, and I'm always like, yeah, I'm ready to And now I can it. just refer them to my podcast I will. and I get more listens. Check out this podcast. This explains it. So the reason to care, I think, is because... So, I mean, it's a whether I don't know whether you take it for granted that the great works of culture are worth paying attention to. I have no idea. A lot of people take that as a given mm -hmm. and, and don't bother to explain why should I read the canonical works of Western literature? Um, it's just sort of like, well, you're supposed to. Smart people have. But with folklore, what we have is culture that hangs around even though it doesn't have to. So if you think about why most of us read the great works of literature, it's because we're gonna take a test on it. Like, or we wanna pass the AP English test or the AP literature test, or we're in college. Why do any of us take a driver's test? Because we have to. None of us are doing those things because we want to, right? But folklore is the cultural stuff that everyone knows, even though we're not being tested on like it. Like Jimmy Fallon YouTube videos. Yes, exactly, right? Yeah. I mean, pop culture too, I think. Pop culture differs from folk culture because oh. it has advertising it behind has. it. Like, you know, Jimmy Fallon has 
advertisers. And he's also great. I like to think he'd be discovered if he, you know, didn't have advertising. But folklore, so is we're not being tested on it. And it's riding on nothing but itself. It has no advertising. It's not making any money. So I, I like to think of the example of driving. Like, you learn the rules of the road because you have to pass a test to get your driver's license and you want to drive, right? But why do you learn the word pediddle? Why do you learn what to do when you what drive is over the word pediddle? Do you not know that word? Pediddle? No. Is that what you call per- it here pediddle. in Utah? Pediddle. I say pediddle. Yes. What is that? It's a car with one headlight. Oh. Yeah. Do you not know that? Well, I know. I had a friend, and every time you saw one, you would say, beer me or sex me, but we're Mormons, <gasps> so we would just say it. There was no alcohol or nudity involved. No, but I love that. That's a, a the very similar, it's a good variant of this tradition. Did you ever have a tradition of what to do when you narrowly drove through a yellow light? You kiss your hand, and then you reach for the visor. Yes. I always kiss my hand and hit the roof of the car. Oh. The, yeah, that was what we did. What do you do when you drive over a train track? You pick up your feet or yes. touch the screw. Touch a screw. Exactly. Both is what I grew up <laughs> thinking that you have to do. Here's the thing. Like, why do we know that? I didn't grow up here. I grew up in because California. Because my sister like, Shannon told me Exactly. Too. Right? All of my friends told me this is what you do. It's bad luck if you don't pick up your feet and touch a screw over a train track or a cattle guard. And so this is interesting because... This is interesting because... We're not getting tested on that. That's not a part of driver knowledge that you have to know to get a license. And yet everyone knows it. And anytime you're faced with cultural stuff that people in a whole lot of places know, even though they don't have to, that's an indicator of importance. It might be silly importance. I mean, who the heck knows why Mm -hmm. touching a screw and lifting your feet up is important. It'll keep you from turning into a skeleton, obviously. Obviously. (laughs) Bad movies get made. Bad urban legends stop being told. But folklore, if it sucks, never exists. Exactly. That's it. It's just gone. Okay, so we're like out of time, but I have one last question. Yes. What kind of laundry detergent do you use? I, oh, are you ready? Yeah. Okay. So I use all natural lavender scented borax pellets Uh in my high efficiency washing (laughs) machine. And I do not own a dryer. I line dry everything. I hear you can save a lot of money doing that. That It's really, well, and you save the planet because dryers use more electricity than any appliance. That's why there's no Energy Star dryers. It, right? They're all horrible. And How what, do you line dry in the winter? It, we have a little rack that we set up in our home. It makes us feel terribly European. Oh, I know, cool. it's so pretentious and awful. <laughs> but what happened really was that our dryer broke. And we had an old washer and dryer, and we were like looking at all these fancy new dryers. And I was kind of going, well, I don't want a fancy new dryer. I want a fancy new washing machine. And, but that's not broken. But it didn't matter. We just bought a new washing machine anyway. And we're like, we'll buy the dryer a few months from now when we have money again. Yeah. And that was three years ago. And we just never bought a dryer. We don't need one. So I use like... And it's Utah, so the air is super dry. So it takes like... And it like humidifies your house to hang a bunch of laundry inside in winter in front of the fireplace. And there's only two of us. Mm. So these Borox pellets, it's just straight Borox? I, that's what I. That's what it says on it. It's like lavender scented. They're not like even in the borax, little plastic wrap. Lavender. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Where do you get these? Nature's Grocer. Oh, I know. Cool. The, what, is that what it's called? Or is it Natural I know, Grocer? Whatever. I don't even know. That totally pretentious place where you would pay a lot that of extra money. where you do money. all your grocery shopping? Oh, I'm not a millionaire. Of course <laughs> not. But that's where I buy my pretentious laundry detergent. Oh, okay. So, it's like yeah. how I go to Trader Joe's and all I buy is cookie butter, <laughs> maybe some licorice, and 
gnocchi because their mm-hmm. gnocchi's really cheap. Yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> I get like four things. Yes, I get all the basics at Smith's like everyone else. Yeah. And then I just get like the few fancy things yeah. that I want at the fancy store. Awesome. Now yeah. our shopping habits will be recorded yes. for folkloreness. Thank you for talking to me. Awesome. This is super fun. I'm going to have to figure out a way to cut 10 minutes out of it, but that's fine. Good or luck. Five. Five. Okay. Whatever. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with your friends. You can let me know you enjoyed it by liking it, dropping a comment, or following me on SoundCloud. Also, please follow We've Got 20 Minutes on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you really want to be a wonderful human, you can now financially support this podcast on Patreon. All the links are below. Thank you, and remember, a lot can change in 20 minutes.